Welcome to the LoveWorks Radio Show with Chris Conley and Karen Conley. I'm Byron Tyler, the program producer of the show. Karen has the day off, but in the studio with Chris. Chris, good to see you. It's good to be here, Byron. We are so grateful for who you are and what you do for us at the radio station here and what you do for the greater Memphis community. So thank you for stepping in today. Well, I'm looking forward to the opportunity as we delve into Love Works and really the heartbeat of what Love Works is that God has placed on your heart, Chris. And I know that you and Karen over the past few weeks have kind of laid a foundation of what Love Works is and also about how important mentoring is. We're going to kind of pick up on some of that. Now, I know originally you started a 501c3 to launch the vision for Love Works. Why was it necessary to do that? Well, I think it was back in 2009 when God gave me the vision of Love Works to be the vision of High Point Church. And what we say at High Point Church is we exist to prove that love works. I believe that vision, it's the core. It's the essence of everything in the Bible. You can just take the great commandment, the great commission, and you kind of just mash them together. And the result is love works, right? Love God, love people. And then that equals love works. But as I have lived in this for several years now, I want to give this vision of love works to the city of Memphis and beyond. I want it to be bigger than just High Point Church. So sometimes when your vision is just in a local church, every church has their expression of the Great Commandment, the Great Commission, and other organizations have their vision. But I really believe that this is a vision that everybody can embrace, whether someone is a believer or not a believer. I think everybody in the entire world would say they want love to work. When we look at the city of Memphis, what we want to do is we want to address the biggest problems in the city of Memphis by saying love works. And so we thought it was necessary in order to bring in all the different talent and the talented people in the city of Memphis, that if we took it out from under the umbrella of High Point Church and we made it a separate 501c3, then we could benefit from all the churches participating. We could benefit from different corporations participating. It could be more ecumenical. It could be more inclusive. So it was just our desire to give this to the city of Memphis. Well, when you talk about focusing on Memphis's biggest problems, what are some of the problems that you see that are plaguing our city as well as affecting other cities across the U.S.? Absolutely. When I look at that, one of the pictures that forms in my mind is a picture of darkness and light. Ten years or so ago, Hurricane Elvis came through Memphis where there was those straight line winds. I remember that. And there were these sections of town that were without power for a significant period of time. I remember seeing aerial shots of Memphis from helicopters where you would see certain areas that had power, and so therefore there was light. And then there were other areas that did not have power, and it was pure darkness. And what just kind of clicked in my mind was there are domains of darkness in Memphis. And it's our responsibility as believers to dispel the darkness with light. So we think that there are five primary domains of darkness. Urban education is one of the biggest problems in Memphis. And in order for us to solve a multitude of problems, we need to invest in urban education. The average graduate of a city school compared to a suburban school graduates four grade levels behind. Slightly more than 50% of people 
graduate. And so what we want to do is we want to make a significant contribution investment in the teachers, in the administrators, in the principals, in the students, in the parents, and say that we as a nonprofit, but we also want to collaborate together with all the churches to address this problem of education. And we want to go from education being a weakness to being a strength. So we think that is maybe the one problem that is interconnected with so many other problems. Perhaps maybe the second problem in Memphis is single parenthood. If my memory serves me correct, I think Memphis is one of the top five cities in America when it comes to single parents. So we would love to address that. When the scripture says that true religion is for the church to take care of widows and orphans, a modern-day expression of that in America is for us to look after single parents. Is there a harder job in all the world than being a single parent? So instead of us being critical about any of these problems, sometimes in any city in America, people can criticize their own city because of the problems. Listen, these problems aren't somebody else's problems. If we live in the city of Memphis, these are our problems. Yeah. So we want to take ownership of our problems because we believe we have the solution through Jesus Christ and the people of God. So that's two of the five. Well, and I grew up in a single-parent home myself, and there is that stigma you feel in that situation, and even as you enter into a church sometimes. And that's where this is our opportunity to help be that dad or help be that mom or help be a sibling. It's where the people of God, the church of God, can be the family of God to those who their family has walked through some challenges, through some adversity. It's important for us not to define the family only as a two-parent family, married couple family. Life is challenging. It's incredibly hard. There's all kind of different expressions of the family, and that's where we can come in and we can provide an opportunity to prove that love works in every expression. Well, Chris, as we mentioned over the past several weeks, you and Karen have been talking about mentoring. What does a mentoring look like? How do you become a mentor? What are some of the things a mentor looks at when he's trying to mentor someone. And I know one of the focuses of Love Works and the strategy is to recruit mentors. Twelve, by the way, just like Mm -hmm. Jesus had. When you look at the way Jesus mentored his twelve, how do we mirror that in context to where we live and are today? Obviously, when you look at what Jesus did with his 12, he even broke down the 12. He had three that was in his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And he spent a significant amount of time with them. And then they also kind of had within that 12, their close friends. So there was this life on life experience. They did life together. So one of the things that we think is important about mirroring what Jesus did is that mentoring doesn't exist in a classroom alone. Mentoring exists as we are going. So one of the reasons why we're looking at these, what we think to be the top five problems in Memphis, if we go back urban education, single parenthood, and then drugs, alcohol, any type of substance abuse is what we think to be maybe that third problem, homelessness, and then prison We need to help people while they're in there. Then we need to help them when they get out and help them rebuild their lives. And if we were to look at mentoring in the context of these problems, if someone would have cared for them along the way, 
there was at some point where someone was in one of those circumstances and they probably even quit caring about themselves. And they may even have given up on themselves. A lot of times what happens was when someone finds themselves in a difficult circumstance or they find themselves struggling in some way, they lose hope and they don't care. Well, what a mentor does is a mentor cares when no one cares. And a mentor helps when no one helps. And a mentor is one of those people that just will keep believing the best about you. So what we think the significance of mentoring here is everybody wants to be loved and everybody wants to be valuable and be valued. Whenever you find yourself in one of those situations that you're in one of these struggles in life and you're addressing one of these problems in life, then it almost surprises you. Can you imagine if we had a group of people who were trained to be mentors that said, oh, guess what? When the rest of the world doesn't care about you, I want you to know I care about you. There's those times when you think you have a friend that when you're in a crisis or maybe you fail in a moral way that they turn their back on you. So a mentor would have a heart to go beyond whatever I'm going through. They're going to be there for me. Well, and that goes back to what you said just a moment ago of how do we go back and do this the way Jesus did it? You know, the most remarkable thing about Jesus is that he was called a friend of sinners. Unfortunately, it was the religious people that called him that, but they called him that in a negative way. But yet today we see that in a positive light. And what Jesus did, he came alongside of people who maybe others had given up on, and he came alongside of people and showed interest in others that had people turn their back on them. And he saw value where others did not see value. And he believed where others had quit believing. And it was just one of those things where in the life of Jesus, he always saw the divine potential in that person. He saw what could be. And he knew that his shed blood on the cross and the death, burial, and resurrection was going to forgive their past. And he knew that he was going to take them from remove the old creation and make a new creation. So he was always focused on what they could be, not what they were. And I think that's where we bring in, what did Jesus choose mentoring slash discipleship, whichever word you prefer? Why did he choose that as his method to change the world and as his method to start the church to be the primary organization he was going to use to change the world. Well, when we talk about recruiting those to engage this issue of mentoring in these 12 that we're talking about, primarily you're looking at focusing on students and young adults. Why is that? Well, when you look at the disciples that Jesus recruited, the original 12, to the best of our ability to understand their season of life and where they were, the best of scholars think all of them were teenagers, except for maybe Peter. Peter might have been in his early 20s, okay? Mm-hmm. And it's that season of life where you're a dreamer. You still believe everything's possible. And it's that season of life where you're searching for your purpose. You know that somehow or another there's a greater purpose, and but yet you haven't developed that yet and, and haven't found that yet. And so I think it's that opportunity to catch people when they are very early in their faith. And you have to teach them to do big and bold things when they're early in their faith. Otherwise, 
honestly, we teach people to sit. We teach people to be consumers instead of contributors. And we teach people that there's nothing exciting or vibrant or adventurous or mission oriented. So when we get a young person somewhere between teenager or somewhere between 13 and 30 years of age, we show them that there are big and bold things that they can be used of God for. It sets them on an adventure for a life. We know, Chris, if my memory serves me correct, it was a teenager that stood in front of a tank in Tenement Square. You are correct. I wouldn't do that. Absolutely. And that's one of those indelible pictures in our mind that if we were alive at that time, I remember that, you remember that, there is something courageous that lives in the heart of someone in that season of life. And we need to develop that. Let's say that's a fire that lives in someone's heart. Let's throw gas on it. Let's make that fire stronger and greater. We also talk about values, and there's a list of values that we want to discuss. The first value describes your love work strategy is to keep showing up. Describe what that looks like. Well, here's what we say. We say, we believe when you keep showing up, love works. Now, why do we say it that way, when you keep showing up? Because there's a lot of people that are interested in helping solve one of Memphis's top five problems, okay? We have good intentions, but we'll show up once, and then we go back to kind of our normal routine. Sometimes we'll show up two or three times a year, but then we're busy, and and I understand that this is not meant to be critical of anybody, okay? But... To the people that we are trying to help, in the course of 365 days, once or five times or even 10 times is not very many times for them to receive love. We're not just trying to do something for them. We're not just trying to give them something. We're actually trying to become a friend. We're trying to become a mentor. And someone who's been beaten down and lost all hope or doesn't think they have someone who really cares, it might take multiple times to gain that trust. Absolutely it is. Um, I think what you just said is so pivotal that there is a lack of trust. So we're operating from a deficit when it comes to trust. So it's going to take some consistency to build the trust. Then once that trust is built, Now, here's the thing. We just have to be honest. I'm hard to love. You're hard to love. Every single person is imperfect and therefore hard to love. Well, when someone has gone through challenging times in their life, challenging seasons of adversity in their life, they're even more hard to love. So we got to keep showing up through the highs and lows of their life. We have to keep showing up even when they're irresponsible. We got to keep showing up when it's one of those things that it needs perseverance We can't expect those that we're mentoring to be mature already. They're immature. And as the people who are mature, the mentors, the mentors are supposed to be the ones that are mature, then the mature ones keep showing up, even when the immature ones don't show up all the time. (laughs) Well, and that immaturity also shows lack of personal disciplines oftentimes. I know that's one of the other values when we talk about developing that, trying to conquer some of those issues like personal disciplines. How can these be built up in our lives along the way? Personal disciplines are the key to character development. When we say someone is a person of character, what does that mean? Well, it probably means that they have some habits in their life that are positive habits. First Timothy 4, 7 says this, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Discipline is not a word most of us readily embrace. 
But here's what discipline really is. Discipline is delayed gratification. If we will discipline ourselves, we're not getting immediate gratification right then and there. But if we discipline ourselves consistently over time, then it's the principle of sowing and reaping. We're going to reap character. And when we reap character, someone who is a man or woman of their word, someone who's faithful instead of faithless, someone who's consistent instead of inconsistent, then every single person respects a person of character. But character is always made up of many habits. We either have bad habits or good habits. There's not a neutral. And really the mentor E, as we've described over the past few weeks, is someone that needs to have an example before them. Not that we're perfect in ourselves. As you mentioned, we're imperfect. But if we're just a step or two ahead and are able to display what that character or those habits, whether it's having a priority time consistently doing things in that nature. Well, that has to be the most attractive part of the mentoring relationship. As the mentor, we have to live a life that the mentee looks at and says, I want your life. I see something in your life that I want. I see something in you that's attractive. I want to spend time with you to learn how you have built the life that you've built. And like you said, it's not a perfect life. It's progress, not perfection. But it is a life that there are some foundational habits, okay? There's a life there that this person has developed a work ethic. So they have a habit of understanding the value of work and putting in the hours and sowing the seed of work in their life to reap the benefit of a paycheck, okay? That's a good habit that we don't need to just assume that everyone has. You mentioned the habit of a priority time. That's the habit of renewing your mind. We say a priority time, it's it's that daily unhurried time with God to read the Word of God, to know the God of the Word. So when you read the Word of God, that renews your mind. And when that renews your mind, it gives you the ability to make wise decisions instead of unwise decisions. So it's habits like that, that when that young man or woman is meeting with you, they're looking at you not as a perfect example, but they are definitely looking at you as an example. Chris, take us back, if you will, a little bit. A name has surfaced on this program, Clyde Cranford. Yes. I know a very, very dear and special friend. He was a friend of mine, too. And you had a mentoring relationship with him prior to you engaging him in that relationship. Where were you in your life? What was it about Clyde that stood out to you or something that you wanted from his life? That's a great question. When I think back to my spiritual walk before Clyde Cranford, God had done an initial work in my life. And I was encouraged by that work. I was fired up about who God was. I had been saved. I had been forgiven, but I didn't really know how to get to the next place. I didn't know how to grow spiritually. I didn't know what the future had in store. When I had dinner with Clyde Cranford one night, I would just listen to the way that he talked about who Jesus was, the way that he had a grasp of Scripture and understood just the relational dynamics involved between who God is and who we are and who God is as our father, who we are as his child. There was a relationship, a visible relationship there, even though, you know, it's kind of invisible in some ways. It was visible. And I just wanted something that he had that I know I I didn't quite have. And can we just stop a second and do total respect of Clyde Cranford, who I love very much. I know as you do. Outward appearance. There wasn't anything physically that you would say, 
I want to be like Clyde in a sense of being athletic because that wasn't who he was. It was that inner humble spirit of Christ that was just so evident when you were around him. That's absolutely true. There might even be some people, if they were to look at Clyde's appearance, they would make the wrong assumptions and they might think he was an undisciplined person in some way. But the truth is he was incredibly disciplined. And what drew you to Clyde was just he loved God. And I don't say that in just the most, you know, kind of superficial kind of we always say that. But like as if God was right here in the flesh, as if God was his spouse. It was one of those things that when he talked about Jesus, like you would kind of maybe want to look around the room and see if he was there, you know. And it made that relationship more real. And there was just something attractive that I thought there's more to this than what I currently have and than what I currently know. So he simply taught me how to spend time in the Word of God, taught me how to spend time in prayer, whereas prayer is not just a something we do, but as prayer is a relationship. It's having a conversation with God. And in those ways, it created an appetite in me. It created a hunger, and I'll never be able to thank him enough for it. Chris, I've heard you use this illustration before about sporting events. The stands are full of screaming fans while 22 players are on the field beating each other up to win the game. Talk about moving out of the stands and onto the field, moving from consumer to contributor. You know, when we look at today's church, the modern church, we have to be careful that we define church not as a worship service or not as a building or organization. The people of God are the church. In the worship service, it should be kind of two things, a time of celebration, that we come together and celebrate what God has already done through our lives that week. And then it's a time of equipping to send us out to go do the work of God again. So sometimes when we take this American phenomenon of big stadiums and watching sporting events or we go and we watch some talented person at a concert or something like that, we can just kind of fall into the rhythm of doing that with church. And when we go to church, we think about it purely from the perspective of what I can get instead of what I can give. And the American culture is one built on consumerism. Jesus is full of paradigm shifts, and he's full of teaching things that are a paradox. So we have to look and go, no, 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 it's more blessed to give than to receive. And no, my happiness is not built upon how much I consume. My happiness is actually built on how much I contribute. So what we want to do there is we want to redefine what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so as a follower of Christ, what if I got up every Sunday morning and instead of just thinking about the worship service, I first got up to go serve in the church so that someone else will benefit from me giving first. So what if I came as a contributor first and then second, yes, I'm there to receive whatever the Lord has for me that day, but I'm receiving to be equipped to go give again. And even carrying that beyond the church walls to showing that love works in our daily jobs, our schools, and wherever we are in life. Well, and that's why... This emphasis is on mentoring. When you come to church, typically, like if you come to High Point Church, I'm teaching or Andy Savage is teaching, and we're trying to do our very best to equip 
the people of God that is this big crowd at that particular moment. And in that crowd, there are people in every season of life, and there's people that are at every different point in their spiritual journey, and there's people that aren't believers. So it's hard to dive in and really focus on something because you're trying to take everybody and just move them one or two steps forward. But when you get into mentoring, then I'm able to ask you questions about your life and just listen. I don't have to know it all. I want to learn about you. I want to hear what does it mean for you to walk with God? Where do you struggle? And then when I find out what your strengths are and I find out what your weaknesses are, then I can begin to teach the truth of God in a way that is specific to your life and give specific application and illustration. And and it's so important for us not to be intimidated or overwhelmed by this. Most of us, if we're mentoring someone else, we're a little bit older. We're in a season of life that's a little bit more advanced or down the road. We can take the most simple truths of God, and we can also take practical experience and life experience, and we can take wisdom and apply that to someone else's life in a profound way, in a powerful way. And then they just feel loved because you care. That's right. Well, Chris, we're going to have to end the program today on this edition of Love Works. You can learn more about the ministry of Chris Conley and Karen Conley at highpointmemphis.com. You can also go to chrisconley.net or karenconley.com. And Karen is spelled with the K, K A R I N, Conley.com. And Chris, it's been great to join you on this program. We look forward to coming back next time. Hopefully, Karen will be back in the studio and continue the conversation here on Love Works. Remember, love God, loving people equals love works.